Open up your Bibles again to John chapter 6. John chapter 6. We began last week. We looked at the first 14 verses. We're going to pick up today reading in verse 15. Uh, This all uh, continues through the whole chapter, uh, but uh, particularly through verse 40. Uh, which is, uh, we'll, we'll pick up with 15 today, we'll go through 21 this morning, and then uh, 22 through uh, the following verses uh, next week, good Lord willing. I will summary for, summarize for us in a moment what we saw last week, because it's important, because it's all part of this immediate context. But follow along reading now in verse 15, John chapter 6. God's inerrant, infallible word. This is God talking to us. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. When evening came, his disciples went down to the lake, got into a boat, and started across the lake to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The lake became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the lake and coming near the boat. They were frightened. But he said to them, It's I. Do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Grass withers and the flower fades. The word of our God endures forever. Last week, we considered the first point on the outline that you see there printed and inserted in your order of service. We saw that Jesus controls nature to meet needs and prove his deity. Those are the first 14 verses, and there the bread issue was brought up. Now here we have a move to him walking on the water, but the bread's coming back up. So just hold that in your mind. Verse 22, the next day the crowd that remained on the other side saw that the boat wasn't there. So they get curious. And they go over. Other boats from Tiberias, in verse 23, came near the place where they had eaten the bread. And on and on it goes. And and he talks more with these people about the bread issue. As I said, we'll pick that up next week. But just keep in mind, it's it's it hasn't gone away. And this little... This little Inclusio here, this, this little insert concerning him walking on the water is all part of this bigger picture and this, this larger story. So last week we saw that he, he fed the 5,000 men plus the wives and children. Keep that in mind. The other episode, the other account of him feeding was limited to 4,000 total. So this is two different episodes, two different occasions that the Lord did this. This was a really, really useful way for Jesus to prove himself to to Hebrews, to Jews. 
because they had this rich tradition in the Old Testament about the bread, the manna that came down from heaven. And he's going to use that to show that he, in fact, was the one that gave it to them. And, in fact, he was the bread. So just keep that in the back of your mind while we look at this brief portion today. But we saw last week, he's defending his deity, but in the middle of defending his deity, showing that he is God, he's the one who gives bread, he's the one who fed them in the wilderness, we also noted that he doesn't just do this abstractly. He's not just, I'm God. I'm doing this to show you I'm God. But he genuinely does care about them. And the Calvin, one of the Calvin quotes I used, I'll, I'll use again just to summarize that. Christ plainly showed that he not only bestows spiritual life on the world, but that his father commanded him also to nourish the body. For abundance of all blessings is committed to his hand, for he is the living fountain flowing from the eternal Father. So in the middle of proving himself to be very God of very God, he's showing that he cares about the people, that he meets their needs. Back to the psalmist comment that I, I, I brought in last week, the psalmist, I've never seen the righteous begging or lacking for bread. It's a remarkable thought that our God provides for his people and he provides for them well. And then finally, I noted last week that pay attention that our Lord in, in the middle of this giving of the bread, he does it in an orderly fashion. He requires them to sit down and we learn from the other episode, something that was just like what Moses required, getting to the whole Moses theme again, what Moses required of the people when he was caring for them, ministering to them, was to sit down in, in groups of 50s and 100s. In other words, our Lord is not, a, our God's not a God of chaos. He's not a God of, of it's, it's not like a concert where all of a sudden he dumps a bunch of bread out there and people just go crazy running toward the gates and kill one another to get to it. He's a God of order. He's a God of decent order. That's what we saw last week. So for those who missed last week, you're caught up. Now, this week, point two, Jesus controls nature to meet needs and direct history. Last week, to meet needs and prove his deity. This week, meet needs and direct history. But that's just an outflow of he is God. When evening came, his disciples went down to the lake, got into a boat. They start across the lake of Capernaum, the Sea of Tiberias, Galilee, and they fall into this, this squall. And Jesus is not with them. But there's something that comes before that that we don't want to just pass over. It's something of a something of a transition statement. It's it, but it hinges the whole thing together. But it'd be easy just to miss it. <clears throat> He's talking about Moses, and then this verse, curious verse, fifteen, perceiving then that they were about to come and make him by force a king. 
Jesus withdrew to the mountain again. So because he was Moses, they, they said that, right? When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world, a reference back to Deuteronomy 18, the greater prophet, the greater Moses. But then, because of that, they're going to make him a king. Now, I'm going to tell you, scholars are, 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 there's so much written on this in commentaries. So I'm going to try to just distill it down, okay? Just kind of shrink wrap it for us here this morning. This shows that the Old Testament saints, the Hebrews, understood that these greater episodes, the greater priest, Melchizedek, the greater prophet than Moses, and the king that would be after David, that they were all related. That while in the Old Covenant, the prophet, priest, and king were three distinct offices, in the new covenant with the coming of Messiah, they would, they would somehow all be the one. He would be this majestic king ruling over all things. He'd be a prophet that was wise and speaking from God, from heaven to earth. And he'd also be the priest that offers the great sacrifice, who offers the worship that's acceptable to God. If you're looking for a single verse in the Old Testament that says that, you're not going to find one. But it becomes obvious as the, as the prophets write, and particularly here in the New Covenant, that this is what's going on. They're all anticipating that these three are all going to be wrapped up in the Messiah. So when they think they've identified here, and rightly, by the way, right? When they think they've identified the prophet, the greater prophet, well, it's then just natural that they've identified the Messiah, the king. So here comes the next question. Why does Jesus dodge it? Why does he evade them, as it says? Perceiving that they were going to take him by force to make him king, he withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Well, you, you've all, you all know this if you've been in church much at all. For those who haven't, I'll tell you. Their view of king and Jesus' view of king are not the same. In chapter 18 of John, we'll get there eventually. Jesus says when he's asked, are you the king of the Jews? What does he say? He says, my kingdom is not of this world. He didn't deny he's the king. In fact, he goes on to say, this is why I was born, to be the king. But my kingdom is not the way you think about kingdoms. My kingship is not going to be the way you think about kingships. You think about military rulers. You think about men who are not necessarily righteous, but powerful. And that's why he evades the situation here. They're trying to make him something that he's not. They're intent on making something of Jesus he's not. Now let me stop right there. That one's easy to apply to us today, isn't it? 
I want to say this first, and then I'm going to back up. We all know people who love to say things like, well, I like to think of Jesus this way, and they tell you which way. They may be more generic. They may not like to use the Jesus word, so they say, well, I like to think of God this way. And then they get all pious in their posture, and they, they tell you. And by the time it's over, you're like, oh, you want a God like you. Now, if Pastor John were here, he would just go something like that and be done with that thing. So I'm going to. I learned that from John Blevins one Sunday night. So I've, I've been waiting to use it. And I know during the reading of the scripture, he landed right here. And I had the chance, but I didn't want to hurt my head. So I, didn't mind. I knew we can replace that. Okay. With that dispensed. I don't think I've ever seen anybody else besides your two pastors do that in public and live streaming too. Um, But here's the thing that this passage teaches us. Verse 15, that is. You can't shape Jesus just any way you want to shape him. You can't mold him into the kind of Jesus you want to think about Jesus as being. Well, I like to think of Jesus as as meek and mild. You know, like the baby in the manger. Yeah, but the same Jesus went into the temple and turned over the tables and got mad and threw stuff out. So you you can't make him just your way. Then there are those people who like to think of him as, well, he's going to send us all to hell. Look at this nation. We kill babies in the womb. We let homosexuals marry. And on and on it goes. Jesus is going to get us all. And the fact is, when you you read the Bible, Jesus is bigger than that. Because he's God. Say, oh, but he's a man too. Yeah, he's God, he's the God man. And so he's not going to let them make him into a king that's after their own image, after their own liking. You remember the trouble that got Israel into way back in the Old Testament? We want a king like all the nations. Well, God gave them that. It was Saul. Things didn't go well. Thankfully, he gave him David, man after God's own heart. But they didn't like that either. So then he gave them Jehoiakim, Jehoiakim, and that whole rascally line of kings, both in in the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, made after their own image, made in their likeness, but not a man after God's own heart. So that's the first thing we have to see. We've got this transitional verse. It's about this great prophet also being a king, but not a king like you think about him. It's a king after after the heart of God for his people. He's in control of everything. That's the main point, though, is 
the way this hinges here is Jesus is not going to let him make him a king that's temporal and limited. He's going to show them immediately that I'm a king that's not limited. I'm not a king who is temporal. I'm a, God, I'm a king who is above all things. Yes, I'm here on this earth right now, but I'm not a king limited. And so he goes out and he walks on the water. This sends the Hebrews' minds reeling too, right? Because they go back to, wow, God divided the water and our people walked through on dry ground. We read about an axe being chunked into the water and going to the bottom and God made the axe head float up to the top. He controlled the water. Jonah. Jonah's out there on a boat. Perfectly fine. Everything's going well until God, and we read this and it's so vivid in the Hebrew, God literally wraps up this ball of of storm and with his great right arm, he hurls it, it says, and Jonah out onto the ocean. And all of a sudden, this, this ocean is just in the midst of a hurricane, the Mediterranean. And they're all going to die. They know they're all going to die. Something happened here. Something's going on. Well, God, because he's above. He's the king of everything. He's able to control everything. He changes history that way. And so here, he changes history for these people, doesn't he? I mean, look, it was dark. Jesus had not yet come to them. The lake became rough because of a storm and blowing. We learn when we study about this this region and this particular body of water that at the time, because of the way it's located, these squalls come up on the water and it's like a it's like a, a bowl and the water just gets churned up into this this wildness. And it still does. It did in those days. Now Jesus does something with the water more than once, remember? There's the occasion when he's with them on the boat and he goes to sleep. Don't you care about us, Lord? And he just simply says, well, yeah. And he says something. It's translated variously. It's not. You know, the old authorized version translated that occasion. Jesus saying, peace, be still. And you get this Charlton Heston sort of. For those of you who know the old movies, Charlton Heston. Peace, be still. Sort of the 1950s big steeple preacher voice. But that's not what Jesus said. It, it's really something more akin to stop it. Be, be quiet. You know, kind of like you do with your children sometimes in the car. When you've asked a time or two to please be quiet. I've got a headache. And we're in traffic and you finally end up having to turn around and just, well, whoever's closest, you know, stop it. That's kind of what Jesus does here. He's king. He can do that. It's his. 
He's the one. And, and in each case, whether it's the time when he's sleeping or this time when he walks on the water, he changes their lives. You remember? It's not a brought, brought up Charlton Heston. I'll bring up. I'll bring up another old movie, and it's one that starred Jimmy Stewart. It's a Wonderful Life. You remember? There's that big part of that movie where the angel, we'll just say God, decides to show him what life would have been like if he hadn't been there. Remember? If you've not seen It's a Wonderful Life, you should. Eh, don't worry about the angels and the tinkling and the, they get their wings and all that stuff. It's not a good, you know, you don't get your theology from movies. But all of a sudden the Jimmy Stewart character wakes up out of this this dream and he it dreams all about what would have happened if he hadn't lived and that's what's going on here what would have happened if Jesus hadn't been king their whole lives would have been different right listen folks think about it we should we should ruminate on this often we should take time occasionally to sit and just think what if what if God hadn't done this and what if he hadn't have given me this wife and given me this husband and given me these children and given me this job and given me this? What would life have been like? God's orchestrating all things whatsoever from the greatest to the least. I prayed that earlier. I believe that and I hope you do too. Where would you be today if he were not king, if everything were just serendipitous, everything were just willy-nilly, everything was just happenstance. He's the king. And he changes our lives. And by the way, he didn't do this to show off. He did it to meet their needs. We're seeing that again. He didn't just... Divide up all those little bitty loaves and fishes into a whole bunch, left over 12 baskets to show off. We do stuff like that. Well, I mean, we don't do stuff like that, but I mean, we do things to show off. The Thomas kids got real excited. They thought I could do that. Now we don't do, we can't do things like that, but he did things like that. We do other things, silly things to show off, but Jesus didn't show off. He was just exercising his kingship to meet their needs. Yep, it showed who he was, it proved who he was, but it met their needs. Aren't you glad our Lord meets our needs? There's some wonderful testimonies in this room of people who without job, without this, without that, God met their needs. And they didn't go without. Because God met their needs. If the book if 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 if, if there were books written about these episodes, the world could not contain them. You say that sounds like the end of John. Well it is the end of John. Because Jesus is the one doing it. 
This is still all part of what's being, being written about him and what he's doing for us. He's meeting a need. He's impressing upon them the fact that he's God and that that's why he could perform all the miracles, the, the water to wine, the healing, the lame, the feeding, the multitudes. He controls it all. He's the king of it all. And they wanted to make him into a king unlike that. And that's not who he is. And he's not subject to that. He's not going to submit to that. He's going to be the king that we need, not the king that we may want. And he still is. A quote I gave last week from Calvin, he said that Jesus still does this, not by miracles today, but through his providential arranging of all things. It's still him doing it, whether it's providence or it's miraculous. So let me ask you something. First, do you believe that? It's essential that you do. Second, do you thank him for all that he's doing for you? Are you amazed by it? Or has it just become, oh, another day? Everything went pretty much the same today. And do we tell others about this wonderful king that we have? We should leave pondering those questions and we'll leave with our hearts strong closer to him, I'm sure. Father, thank you for your kindness to us and for this, your word. May we leave more like Jesus and with a greater love for him. We pray in his name. Amen.